welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wings podcast. This is your For the Love of Quail edition, which <laughs> which makes me giggle even saying it because that means that I have uh, Quail Forever editor Chad Love and uh, along with my my frequent co-host and sidekick and and really Chad's um, early season hunting partner Marissa Jensen along on, along for this episode of On the Wing podcast and you know I, I mentioned it for love of quail um, Chad you've been watching through social media all these northern states pheasant hunting since well geez if you think about um, some of the earlier states we've been hunting early October. And finally, finally, quail seasons have begun to open up. Not in your home state, not yet, but it's close. Not yet. Close. <laughs> it's close. It'll, it'll be it it'll be open. Yeah, it'll be open by Saturday along with Kansas, but states around you. Well not this weekend, uh, I guess Matt, next weekend. Sorry. No, wait. Um, well, no, it is this weekend. Mike this come weekend. on, man. You, yes. you know, COVID. I, I've I've been cooped up for eight months. I'm I've lost all track of time. Well, I you know I would have thought you'd be counting down the hours by now because I know I you're am. excited. Well, okay, so I'm just doing it incorrectly, me. apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so, what? Wh why are you excited for this particular quail season? What's uh, what's got you juiced? Oh, uh, lots of reasons. A you know I think the big reason is uh, a lot of this. This has been a hard year. And a lot of us has been have been cooped up and have not been able to get out as much as we we want. I've got a I've got a young pup that, and we can talk about that in a little bit. But I mean, just I've done less with her this year, you know, than I've done with any other pup at her age in any years prior to this. Just because you know, I, I the demands of work and and you know the social distancing and you know and, and everything. It's just been it's been tough to get out and and train her. And uh, so she's she's pretty raw at this point, but I'm just really excited. I, you know, I've had her on a couple of trips, early season trips to other states, and I'm just really excited to get her out during quail season now and just let her run and just just to watch her. What and what's her name? Abby Reed Cactus Abby. Abby Rose, and she is a pointer, <laughs> an English pointer, <laughs> just a pointer. right. And I did that on purpose. <laughs> I know you did. <laughs> well, you got to tell folks why I did it on purpose because there was an article. Yeah, in article in, in, in the fall issue written by Tom Davis uh, explaining very succinctly and, and in a very professorial manner uh, why the English pointer is not a dog at all. It's not a, a, a breed and it's strictly pointer. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's why it's it's the big back and forth between guys who, who refer to the, the breed as the English pointer versus guys who just call it pointer. Correct. And you said Cactus Abbey Rose, and that's an um, Edward Abbey reference, isn't it? Yeah, I, I named her after one of my favorite writers, Edward Abbey, and uh, and the, the Cactus Abbey Rose, uh, the cactus part because she's going, she was hopefully going to be my my southern hot weather southwestern desert quail dog, mm. uh, and then the Abbey because of Edward Abbey and Rose because the uh, the the wife of the the breeder that that I got her from had had sort of unofficially named her Rose. And so I promised her that I would include Rose in the registered name. So hmm. that's what it turned out to be. 
Gotcha. And she's so, a handful. You know, she is a handful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, so that means different things to different people. What, um, when you say your, your pup is a handful, what's that mean to you? Uh, you know, she's, she's, she's not, so, you know, pointers have this reputation of being like these, these sort of, uh, emotionless automatons, you know, bird finding machines with very little personality. And, uh, you know, my very first bird dog was a, was a female pointer and almost all the pointers I've been around have not been that stereotype. You know, they're very personable dogs. They're very, they've got a lot of personality and she, she's actually, uh, the first real house dog bird dog that I've had in a long time. Hmm. Hmm. And, uh, she's just, she's just got a ton of personality. You know, uh, everyone talks about how setters, you know, setters have, have personality. And of course I have three setters. So yeah, setters do have a ton of personality, but I don't think that pointers take a backseat to any breed in that regard. And, uh, she's always doing stuff to, to make me laugh. Uh, she's, uh, yeah, she's, she's my little buddy. She's the first dog in a long time that you've had in the house. You said, yeah. Yeah. Really? Uh, partly because uh, our youngest son, uh, ironically, uh, had allergies to, to pet dander and, huh. and, and pet fur. And so it was hard to keep dogs in the house. Uh, but he's, he's mostly grown out of that. He's 14 now. And, and the allergies have really kind of gone away. And, uh, and so I, I brought her in and she's turned into a fantastic house dog. Don't, e don't ever let anybody tell you that pointers are too hyper to be in the house because that's mm. just not true. So bringing Marissa into the conversation, Marissa, before you got into Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, and then before you worked for Nebraska Game of Parks, right, and Fisheries, you were a vet veterinary tech technician, right? Vet tech? Yeah, correct. So I'm assuming you, you um, came across lots of dog owners that had their dogs in the house and then some that believe their dogs should be outside of the house. Um, can you profile like what um, a dog living in the house versus outside of the house? Did that create different personalities in the, in the dog itself by whether or not, because my assumption is if a dog is in the house, they were, they would be more personable, um, you know, greater bonded to mm -hmm. their human owner. Right. Um, and you've seen that uh, I, I, we witnessed that trend over the last say 20, 30 years where bird dog, there used to be that school of belief. Like if you had a bird dog, that dog had to live outside. Otherwise you'd ruin it. Right. So right. It, it, like what's, what, what did you witness? Cause you probably have known more dogs than Chad and I combined times 10. So can you draw any or, uh, profiles there? Yeah, you know, um, I certainly have, have my own personal opinions about indoor versus outdoor <laughs> dogs. Um, that might be a conversation for a different day. But <laughs> I think that, um, you know, dogs that are in the house, you're, you're interacting with them more often um, just because they're around you more often. And so a lot of times their behavior is probably going to be a little bit different because you have expectations about what your dog's supposed to be like in the house um, versus, you know, a dog that's outside and that you're just, you know, letting out and working and, and they're still getting exercise and everything, but they, they're not necessarily going to have the same behaviors inside of a house because they're not 
used to that, right? They don't have mm -hmm. those expectations um, instilled upon them. So um, as far as loyalty, you know, it's hard to say. I think sometimes outdoor dogs are, are so excited to be around the owners because it's not just this given thing that they have all day long that they're, they try really hard to please. Um, but that doesn't mean that that doesn't happen, you know, with indoor dogs as well. So um, I will say that having a dog inside does nothing for their drive. Um, it doesn't change anything. Um, my dogs are the most spoiled dogs ever. They sleep in bed with me. Um, they're allowed on the couch. I mean, I'm just terrible. I shouldn't allow it, but I do. Um, and, and they are very, very drivey. They have no issues with uh, going out and finding birds and and working really hard, but they've got really great off switches too. And that's something that they've learned um, that they've had to have in the house. That's something that I teach very early on, um, mm -hmm. that they, they have to go lay down and they have to chill out. <laughs> well, what do you think, Chad, since this is your first kind of in-house bird dog, were you a kind of a traditionalist in the sense that you believe they should be outside? I, I was, uh, and, and, you know, I, I've noticed some things. So this is the first dog that I've had like full time in the house. And so I've noticed a few little things that I need to pay attention to with her that I don't really need to pay as much attention to with the outside dogs, primarily having to do with, with the feet. Like, you know, Abby's inside most of the day with me while, while I work, obviously I work from home and uh, she doesn't. So I have to, to be more careful about keeping her nails trimmed than I do the outside dogs because they're outside, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're, their nails wear down in the dirt and uh, in the kennels and the, and the concrete. And so I don't ever have to really worry too much about their, their nails. Whereas Abby, I mean, man, her nails, I, I never realized a dog's nails grew that fast. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing that I have to take care of. And, uh, and also the pads, you know, pads on outdoor dogs do tend to be a little bit tougher than, than indoor dogs just because they're, they're you know they come in contact with like i said i i, I have uh, outdoor kennels on concrete pads and uh, and they're out in the yard quite a bit you know and so they're on dirt and so their pads get a little bit more roughed up than what an indoor dog's uh pads mm -hmm. do or at least that seems to be the case with me and so and i generally try not to run boots on my dogs uh just because it's such a pain you know i'm always I'm, I'm terrible about putting them on and i always lose them and uh and so to me, having, having a dog with, with tough pads is, is kind of important. So I'm, it's going to be curious to see how she reacts to that this year, if there's a, an issue with her, with her pads. Uh, mm -hmm. But I have to say so far, so far this year, uh, I haven't really noticed anything, uh, any, any difference in, in running the mm -hmm. dogs. Of course, I haven't started, I haven't started running down here in Sandburg country yet. So we're going to see how that, that, uh, that turns out. But other than that, uh, you know, pretty much what Marissa said, I have not noticed any difference in, in either drive or, or uh, reaction to inclement weather. Um, so I, I'm, I'm starting to come around to the idea that, you know, that, that a lot of those old school thoughts and, and beliefs and were kind of more wives tale than anything else. Mm. How old is Abby now? She's nine months old. Nine months old. And then Leo would be your A-team dog, right? Yeah, he he's three. This will be his third season. And okay. uh, and so, I'm, you know, he's he's pretty much my A-team. And that's part of the reason I'm, I'm really more excited this year uh, about starting this year because, you know, he uh, he got hurt last year not too long after the Rooster Road Trip. It was in, as a matter of fact, it was a couple weeks after last year's Rooster Road Trip, which was in December, mm -hmm. and uh, thought that he had a torn ACL 
and uh, turned out not to be a torn ACL, uh, thankfully, but it pretty much put him out of commission for the rest of the season. And, and I had to rely on my, my other dogs and, you know, my, my other setter female, she's 10 years old, you know, she's semi, she was semi-retired last year. And so, you know, it was, I didn't hunt as much last year on, on the back half of the season, which is my favorite time to hunt as I would have with, with Leo being uh, hurt or with him not being hurt. And so this year, you know, Leo's healthy, got a new pup. And so that's, that's part of the reason I'm really looking forward to the quail season opening. And we have been living through the COVID winter, spring, summer, fall, back to a COVID winter again. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's widely known and talked about and written about and reported on that COVID has led to an explosion in interest in people getting outside, right? Lice, fishing license sales across the country, 35, 40% up. Spring turkey license sales been up. We've seen it. Um, pheasant season up north, combination of great bird numbers and the COVID winter of our discontent, you know, that everybody wants to get back in the game, uh, which is wonderful, but it has created um, a lot more pressure, particularly on public lands, a lot more hunters out, which again is a wonderful thing. Do you anticipate similar explosion in interest across you know, your quail country of Oklahoma and Kansas and, you know, Texas has now been open for about a week. What, what are you, what are you hearing across quail country? Oh yeah. I, I think it's absolutely that way. Uh, everyone that I've talked to is excited to get out. Uh, lots of people are hunting and, and I fully expect uh, that once quail season starts in Kansas and Oklahoma, that you're going to see a lot of people out in the field. Uh, as, a, as a matter of fact, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go bounce around Southern Nebraska for a couple of days later this week hunting. And then I'm going to come back home to, to hunt the opener. And uh, I'm really curious to see how many people I, I, I find out in the field. I, I did hunt the Kansas opener last year and I swore I'd never do it again uh, because there were a lot of people out and, you know, that's no <laughs> knock on other hunters. It's just, you know, just me being yeah. an antisocial misanthrope. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, but this, but this year, of course, you know, I mean, I'm so amped up to get out and go hunting. I'm of course mm. going to go hunt the opener again. And, uh, <laughs> uh I, I'm curious to see how many more people I, I see this year than I did last year. I predict that it's going to be more. Yeah. And we're, what are we about 10 days into the, um, Nebraska season now, Marissa, is that about right? Yeah. Yep. It, um, opened on Halloween this year. So, um, right. I've heard, I've heard really good reports. I haven't been out yet, unfortunately. You haven't. No, it's a it's a sore subject. <laughs> <laughs> I have not, but um, thanks to social media, I am just seeing so much fun from everybody else. Um, but I've heard I've heard really good things. Um, lots of birds, lots of coveys of quail. Um, you know, early season prairie grouse in Nebraska. I mean, I think bird numbers, thankfully, you know. Thankfully, we got a, a Hail Mary this year with bird numbers. Being yeah. Up. So um, I'm excited to get out. Yeah. You think about, um, I think it was the spring of 2019 when Nebraska had just a horrific flooding, right? It was the uh, 
What was the name of that storm? It was, I never. Bomb cyclone. A bomb cyclone, a phrase that I'd never heard before then. Yeah. And that came right before, well, it came during nesting season, right before the hatch. And it just, it really had a um, dramatic impact on bird numbers, particularly in Nebraska. And so it's nice to hear things are starting to bounce back there a bit. Yeah, it's in incredible how things have really rebounded. And, you know, I've one of the areas that I, I prairie chicken hunt is um, with a special permit in Nebraska that's in the eastern part of the state. There's a smaller population there, um, but that's also quail country. And the habitat is gorgeous on some of the open fields mm. and water sites. Um, so, you know, a lot of the biologists and landowners have just done an incredible job with putting in really good habitat to kind of help improve the, the population numbers. So I'm excited. Yeah, I've, I've mentioned this, you know, we've been doing podcasts for two plus years and we've done rooster road trip in Nebraska. And I mentioned this quite frequently, but I'm a huge fan of walk-in programs, you know, particularly ones that are, most of them are built on top of CRP, but Nebraska in my mind sets the gold standard with their open fields and waters program in terms of a walk-in program that adds um, just an amazing habitat component and pays landowners based on the habitat that's on the ground and the diversity of the wildlife. If, if listeners are, um, have never hunted Nebraska for upland birds, and it, it is absolutely one of the best public land states to go chase in the nice pieces, pheasants, quail, um, chickens, and sharpies. Um, the, the Nebraska Upland Slam as it's, as it's marketed. Um, just a wonderful, wonderful state. And I, I talk about Nebraska because that's where, you know, it, we're lamenting a little bit that kind of the Great Plains has had to wait for and watch all the social media channel flood of rough grouse and timber doodles and, and pheasants. But you guys did get to go hunting way back in September um, together in the sand hills. So tell yeah. me about tell me about the sand hills hunt. You want to start, Marissa? Uh, sure, sure. And I was I was going <laughs> to say I probably shouldn't sit here and feel sorry for myself because I I had uh, a couple incredible trips so far this season. Um, but we did um, head out to the Sandhills for the Prairie Grouse opener in Nebraska. Um, and um, if you've listened to any of the recent podcasts and, or, you know, know me personally, Prairie Grouse have a very, very, very special place in my heart. Um, and particularly the, the landscapes um, of the Sandhills. It's just a gorgeous area. So we, we braved the September Nebraska heat and uh, hunted out there with a, another good friend, Allie. Um, who may or may not be involved with a uh, Andrew Vavra. <laughs> well, <laughs> we won't give him too much credit. <laughs> they're married. But, <laughs> but uh, no, she came down and it was just a, a really good time. Um, it's an area that I've hunted before and I saw more birds in that short trip that we spent there than I have, you know, any year previously. So mm. it was a lot Marissa of fun. Marissa was the guide on this hunt. No, no, yeah. no. Yeah. It was just a happy accident. <laughs> no, yeah, we, we had a, a great time. Uh, Nebraska is one of my favorite states. The Sand Hills region is absolutely one of my favorite places in the whole world. And uh, uh, I had never hunted this particular area before. I've hunted Nebraska you know, a number of times, 
but I've never, I've never hunted other than either the Nebraska National Forest or McKelvey National Forest, you know, up in northern Nebraska. And so this was a kind of a special treat for me. And I'd never hunted the, the opener before in, in Nebraska. And, and uh, you know, a lot like Marissa, uh, you know, quail are, are my number one, but, but prairie grouse are just, just a half notch below that. I, I mm. absolutely love hunting prairie grouse. And, uh, and to be able to go up there and, and do that uh, so early in the season, I, I think that's kind of my, my new thing now is, uh, you know, I used to, be, used to be a pretty hardcore September 1 dove hunt, you know, kind of guy. And, uh, uh, lately I've, you know, you, you see all those social media posts from the early grouse seasons up North and, uh, it kind of, it kind of, you know, gets you to thinking that maybe I need to be following the dogs instead of sitting on a, on a windmill. And, uh, so went up there and had a great time doing that. I, I particularly love prairie grouse hunting when I do have a new puppy in the mix, you know, and, and so I'm assuming, so dial it back to September, Abby was probably what, seven months old. So you, you're able to watch your pup like learn and put things together and you have a better understanding of what's happening when they contact birds. Like I, you know, I, I love early season rough grouse hunting, but I'll be darned if I can see the dog, you know, in the trees and <laughs> with all the leaves. And I did the same thing you guys did in September. I opted for prairie grouse. Um, I went further north you guys went you went north in your own right you went northern nebraska i went north dakota but i just love that ability to watch a young dog sort of piece it together and you both have you because marissa you got yeti too yeah and that was that was her first prairie grouse hunt um and you know i especially like the opportunity to see um you know in a young dog or a new dog to to somebody you know what's their range like and, you know, for me, it's, I like to be able to see them range out. And so I get a little bit more comfortable with, you know, what, what's appropriate for her and me. And yeah. uh, I was, I was so proud of her on that hunt. I mean, she was going hundred and 150 yards out um, and just handling like a dime, you know, and, and learning new commands that she was just picking up on her own as I was throwing random words out there. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of fun. And um that Reese, my older dog, got to go to, and she just, she had a phenomenal hunt. Um, unfortunately, you know, she's, she's got paired with an owner that doesn't always shoot the best, but uh, she had some fantastic points. Um, and it was just a lot of fun to watch. Hmm. How did Abby do? Uh, she ran a lot. Uh, I, I will say that uh, she 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 ran fantastically. Uh, she 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 at that point, and she still kind of is in the same stage. Uh, she uh, she just wants to run, you know. And so I I I mainly on that hunt, I I didn't really hunt her per se. So I, I kept her in the box while we while we we actually hunted, and then I would get her out and just let her run. And uh, it was an opportunity for me to kind of just see, you know, like what Marissa was saying, see what her range is. She's, you know, she's, I think she's going to end up being a, probably a medium range dog. Mm -hmm. Uh, but to kind of see her, you know, see how she runs and, uh, and just watch her without worrying about losing her, you know, because it's so open out there and, uh, and just let her, let her run and be a pup. And that's pretty much what I do the first year with a dog anyway. I mean, I'm the world's worst dog trainer. You know, I don't make any bones about, about knowing what I'm doing when it comes to training dogs, but the first year puppy year, uh, I, I like to not put any pressure on a dog at all and just let them run and let mm. them kind of figure things out on their own. And, uh, 
And that's kind of what this year is for her. And, and that was her ex- first experience at doing that. And uh, she, she uh, you know, she, she can get out there. She's got some wheels. I think she's going to, like I said, end up being a medium range dog. But uh, her first time out there in that big, vast uh, expanse of, of prairie, she uh, she got after it. Yeah, I, I had to, there, there were a couple of times when I thought maybe I had a horseback dog on my hands. <laughs> I've, I've um, had the, I've had the sandhills on my uh, bucket list for a long time in the last, the last time I intended to get out there, a snowstorm prevented me from hunting it. Um, so I'm curious uh, just because I've never been there. What's the, what's the snake situation and what's the sandbird situation in the sandhills and particularly you know, most people go to the Sandhills relatively early season, September, October, before the, the prairie grouse become really jumpy and you can't get close to them. Did you guys encounter many, many snakes? I've never ran into a rattlesnake in the Sandhills. Now they're there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's certainly something to be cognizant of. Um, it's the prairie rattlesnake that that's out in that area. Um, which fortunately, you know, isn't isn't as venomous as some of the other species. But um, you know, so far, knock on wood, I haven't had that issue. Um, sandburrs are definitely, you know, something, and we do have prickly pear cactus um, that they'll run into as well. Um, so, like Chad mentioned, having dog boots is is a nice option if the the dog gets you know stuck with a whole bunch of them. Um, you know, obviously the, the sandbirds tend to congregate around water tanks. So it's unfortunate you've got a dog that wants to cool off and then they just get nailed right before they get in the mm. water. But uh, I worry more about porcupines in the sand hills, to be honest. Okay. Um, I think this was the first trip where um, my dog didn't point a porcupine. Every other trip I've been out there, fortunately, she points them and doesn't doesn't try and chomp them. But that's been an issue before. Yeah, I, I, you know, coming from Oklahoma, uh, the, the first time I ever hunted the sand hills, and I'd heard everything about, you know, sand burrs and were bad and everything. Actually, from my perspective, uh, I mean, I live in Northwest Oklahoma, and we are like the sandbird capital of the world. And uh, so, so when I went to the sand hills, I was actually surprised to to discover that the sand burrs weren't as bad as what I thought they would be. So, you know, they're they're there, and uh, uh, like like Marissa said, you know, basically around stock tanks and, and roadsides, like when you're getting the dogs out, uh, there are a lot of sandburrs. Other than that, I mean, they're around, but they're not, for, for dogs that are used to them, I don't think it's much of an issue. Or, and it's certainly not as much of an issue, I think, as, as, what, uh, as what some people are, are worried about. But, uh, but, but boots are definitely recommended if, uh, you, know, if, if you go there. As far as the snakes, yeah, I I've, I've personally have never run into a rattlesnake in the sandhills. Hmm. Uh, it's just, you know, snakes are one of those things that I think, uh, you know, they're there and you need to be aware of them, but they're not as big as, uh, of a, a concern for me as like what Marissa said, porcupines, you know, I've got a dog that likes porcupines. And, and so uh, I'm much more concerned about that than I am snakes for the most part. Hmm. All right. Let's, let's, uh, turn the conversation to your second hunt of the season. Um, tell me about, in uh, another hunt that I've never done personally is the, uh, sage grouse in Wyoming. So how'd this come together? <laughs> it was, it was mainly Marissa's idea. It, you know, she, <laughs> it's it, my it, fault. Have, yeah, it, it's her fault. She, she was the instigator of that. So, you know, I think I, 
I wanted to do something different this year, you know, and, and originally, um, so one of the, the highest priorities for me for an upland bird hunt are ptarmigan, um, mm. and mostly because of the landscape um, and the, you know, extreme, you know, work that, that kind of comes with getting to them. Um, but uh, I was I was talking with a friend um, who's also a uh, Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever employee, Jenny Prenisil. And, you know, we were talking about some hunting opportunities and sage grouse was like ultimate bucket list trip for her. Like this was what she wanted to to do. And um, and so, you know, we started talking about it. We started talking about seasons with sage grouse and, and there's just really no guarantee, you know, that they're going to have a season every year. Um, so I was like, well, let's, yeah, let's let's do this. Um, and yeah, you know, I. I it, it just so happened that Chad was thinking about going too. And it was like, well, let's do this. And, and it was just the most incredible experience. Um, I could have just stayed where we, we camped the entire trip. Um, and I'm not going to hotspot where we camped because it was magical. And, uh, <laughs> but we had no idea going into this, where we were going to stay. It was like, we're just going to pick some, you know, BLM land, and, you know, drive around till we find this spot. And, you know, I'll give all the credit to Chad for figuring out this particular spot and, you know, fly fishing opportunities within 15 feet of where our tents were. Uh, <laughs> it was, it was just gorgeous. And so, um, I mean, everything from where we camped to, you know, finding the birds to um, the dog work. I mean, it was just incredible. Yeah, it, it was I, I easily you know, and I've been on a lot of, of hunts over the years. I, that hunt this year probably ranks among my, my very favorite. Mm. Uh, it, you know, it was, it, it was just like, it had this entire story arc of, you know, you get there and you're excited and, and, you know, and then you, you get some early initial success and you get into this, you know, then you, things get hard and you kind of get despondent and then, you know, then you get success again. And it's just like, it was, it was great. It was, it had all the elements of a great story. And uh, Chad had early success. Let me, let me like make this clear. Chad had early success. <laughs> it took Jenny and I all four days before we did. <laughs> what, what is the, can you shoot one or two or what, what's the, I, I've never been to Wyoming, let alone hunted in Wyoming. What's the limits in the, um, Kind of what's the approach? It's like a two, it's a 15 day season, I think, or maybe it's a little, I think they set it separately each year, but uh, it's a two, two bird limit. And I think, yes. is it four in possession? Marissa? Yeah, I, I think. I believe so. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So two, 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 two daily. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So and, we, uh, um, you know, and I was really lucky. We, we found birds um, three out of the four days, um, which was not what, I think any of us expected, um, you know, we, we learned pretty quickly um, some different, you know, just what to look for, um, how to kind of pinpoint an area using onyx. Um, you know, once we got there, you know, sign, looking for sign. Um, so it was just, it was, it was a really fun learning trip. Um, the wind was insane. There was a few days where we weren't sure if, camp was going to be there when we got back. Um, huh. <laughs> so, I mean, we got everything from, I guess, 80 degrees during the day to waking up and, you know, all of our tents had frost covering them in the morning. So, uh, 
got the full experience. <laughs> yeah, it was quite the temperature range, you know, probably mid-20s at night, uh, all the way up into the mid-80s during the day. Uh, but, it, you know, that that was, that's the my favorite kind of hunting trip to go on, because we didn't, like Marissa said, we didn't really have much of a clue, uh, to be honest. You know, we, we had a sort of a general idea of where we wanted to go, had a, a vague notion of kind of what we wanted to do. But uh, uh, it was a learning experience. And so, you know, you get there and, and you, you, you know, the, the, the feeling uh, and the satisfaction of, of figuring it all out on your own uh-huh. uh, is, is one of the greatest rewards on a trip like that. And, uh, you know, and you, you struggle some, but, uh, and even if, it, even if we hadn't had any success on this hunt, it would have been a fantastic hunt because we learned so much on it, you know? And so we, we learned enough that we're confident that, that when we go back, that we'll, we'll have a, a better understanding of, of what we're doing. But it was a, a really unique hunt. You know, the, the, uh, coming from Oklahoma, like Marissa said, I thought that I knew what wind was. Well, I didn't. Uh, nope. Wyoming wind is a whole other different animal than Oklahoma wind. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we, we, we did take bets on whether the tents would be there each day when we got back. Uh, you know, and the distances between points were, were so vast. You know, that, that was one of the things that, uh, that really uh, struck me is that we, we did a lot more driving than I anticipated we would do. Uh, because the, you know it's just such a, a huge area. Um, how many miles did you walk each day? Oh boy, uh, lots. Idiot. Yeah, like like fifteen. I would or, say I don't think probably... we did. I, I think it was more ten. I mean, we were getting okay. into birds within three to five miles, um, and so I think I think when I looked at the onyx, I think we did. I don't know, twenty five or thirty, kind of total. Okay. Um, so not as much as I would have expected, to be honest. Hmm. But um, it seemed like you walked so far because you could see forever. And what I've well, heard. The, just, sorry, I was going to say the altitude was played a, a bigger factor for, for me, at least than I expected. I mean, you don't hmm. think of this flat area as having altitude, but I think it was seven over 7,000. Um, yeah. and it definitely, I mean, it was it made me realize how out of shape I was. So, <laughs> and I've, I've heard like, it's, um, you know, you're just walking through a sea of sage grouse and you sort of find them where you find them. It, but I've also heard people say, well, if you can identify where there's some sort of water source, you can find the birds, uh, former or latter, which, which is the right, uh, um, do we really need yeah. to ask this question or answer this question? Are you, are you forcing us to? <laughs> so I'm, I'm assuming that it's the latter. If you can identify where there's some source of water, you can find birds. Y- yes, but with a, a caveat there. I mean, I, I think that water is, is an important, you know, uh, way to, to find them. But those birds could be within... You know, just because there's water there does not mean that those birds are going to be right there at that water. I mean, they could be within three or four miles. So, you know, I mean, it's still, even though that that tends to shrink things down a little bit, uh, you're still, you're still doing a whole lot of walking to find a a relatively few birds. So, how'd the dogs handle? I'm sorry, Marissa, go ahead. Well, I was just going to, you know, feed off of that and say, yeah, I mean, that was certainly at least, you know, what we were looking for when we were trying to identify habitat. And uh, I, I just, I like, I want to tell the story of the last day because it was just, it was, it was the coolest day, I think, of the trip. And and Chad, you know, we, 
we were going to go to this spot that we'd already hunted, you know, it was the last day, Jenny and I hadn't shot our birds yet. Um, you know, it was kind of this like, well, this has been such a fun time trying not to get super disappointed that we didn't get our birds. And, you know, we, we looked at the map and kind of picked this spot based off of what we, you know, found to be working. And I don't know, 30 yards from the, the trucks, 40 yards yeah. from the truck, my dog took off, you know, opposite direction of where we're going. And, um, normally if she just totally blows me off, I, she's on a bird and I can't see her. She's 80, 90 yards up over this hill and she goes on point and then she goes off point and then she goes on point and then she goes off point. And I'm on this other side of this, you know, goalie. And so Chad and Jenny go up there and I, you'll have to tell what you guys saw. Cause I, I didn't get to see it. Unfortunately it was my dog. And <laughs> I yeah. missed it all. Reese saved the day on the last day. There's just no doubt about it. Uh, yeah. Uh, Jenny and I were walking one side of a draw. Marissa was on the other side of the draw and, and Reese came across and went up on the top of the, the, uh, the draw uh, on a little bench uh, up above us and went on point. And uh, we walked up there and it, there was a, a group of, of sage grouse probably I, there must've been, you know, 15 of them. And, you know, w one of the interesting things that I, I, I wasn't aware of and, and didn't really expect was that, you know, sage grouse kind of have a tendency to, to run and, but they're such large birds that you can see them. And so Reese was on point and, you know, and, and these birds, I could see these birds running out in front of her and she would relocate and point and relocate and point. And I just told Jenny, I just said, we got to get, you know, get up here. Let's, let's, there, there they are. And uh, uh, fortunately, we got up there, we flushed them, and, and Jenny was able to shoot her first bird. But the, you know, the, the, the site, the thing that I will always remember, and Marissa and I have talked about this, I think the highlight of the trip for me wasn't actually shooting a bird. It was actually seeing a sage grouse in its native habitat, you know, uh, prior to, to flushing it, you know, uh, and, and to see those birds out on that sagebrush flat. And, and then take flight and it had this incredible vista behind them. You know, we were, we were up on, on kind of a big bench and they took off over this like really broad Valley. And mm. uh, just to kind of, that, that's a, that's an image that will always stay with me mm. is to, you know, seeing, seeing sage grouse in that habitat. Uh, yeah. It was, it was pretty magical. And so the dogs handled the transition to a bird they'd never encountered before pretty well. It sounds like. Well, Reese did. Uh, <laughs> Leo, 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 be nice Leo, on the other hand, it, you know, it was strange. And, and we've talked about this too, because so, so my dog, Leo, uh, I, I like to joke that, uh, that he false points every metal arc in the state of Oklahoma. Cause he does, you know, he still does have a little bit of a tendency to occasionally false point, you know, songbirds. Uh, but he's early on in the season, he, you know, he did really well in Nebraska uh, and then on the first day in, in Wyoming, you know, he, he pointed our first group of sage grouse and, and I was fortunate enough to, to shoot a bird out of that group. But for, after that, he, he kind of fell apart a little bit. He, he just started false pointing. There was a bird out there and I can't, I don't, I don't know what kind of bird it was. Some sort of songbird. It lo looked almost like a lark sparrow. I, uh, I'm not familiar with Wyoming birds, but it must've smelled exactly like a game bird because he spent the rest of the trip false pointing, I, I don't know, 15, 20,000 times. The <laughs> trip. It got to the point where I, I just wasn't believing him. And he, you know, he did finally redeem himself on the last day. He did really well on, on uh, singles that, that last day, but uh, he, he struggled. He really did. It was, it was, uh, it was something that I didn't really anticipate. 
and I don't know if other people have had that happen with their dogs, but uh, yeah, sage grouse were uh, it, not not his forte. So uh, you told the story of Jenny's bird, but I can see as I'm as we're talking right behind you, there is a sage grouse fan, feather fan, right? So tail feather, Marissa. Yes. Um, so you clearly. Um, we're able to, to, uh, to get a sage grouse. Tell me about your story. Well, it's an interesting story. <laughs> it, it was the same day and, uh, Chad and I disagree about this bird, um, pretty heavily, but, uh, it, <laughs> it, it was, uh, I think Leo pointed it. Um, yeah. I think my dogs were, were done at that point. Um, and I had put them up and, um, he had pointed a bird and, and held it so tight and I was able to walk right up. I mean, he, he was facing me and kind of go and close the gap between us. And this nice male got up, um, and, and took off and I took one shot, nothing. Second shot hit it, but it was still going. And then third shot, Chad dropped it. <laughs> all I, all I did on that was, was back clean up. That, that, that bird was, that bird was, was a dead bird flying. It was her bird all the way. And yeah, we've, we've had this debate ever since it happened. Uh, you know, we, we would have found that bird regardless. Uh, I, you know, I, like I said, I just, I just wanted to make sure that it went down. Hmm. And I, we will agree to disagree on that. <laughs> I, I, you, you can see that I had no qualms taking the feathers. <laughs> well, and I also know of your passion for fly fishing. Um, so I'm assuming you, you've got big plans for that. Um, some of those feathers. I do. And, you know, one of the things that I didn't realize, and, and I can't think of the name of the, the types of feathers now, um, but the males on their chest have just very stiff, like, you know, feathers that, you know, stick out when they're, when they're booming. And huh. I've never felt anything like it before. Um, it's almost like, like construction paper, you know, type, you know, thick hmm. rigidness. Um, so I don't know if there's any any way to utilize those, but I, I plucked a bunch of those and figured I'd, I'd try something out. And uh, we have to we have to say something about the way they taste too, because I was terrified. I've heard so many bad things, and and I did about regular prairie grouse too, but even worse things about sage grouse. And uh, not true, not true at all. It's one of the best meals I've had. And I did both, you know, a, a hen and a, a cock too, and they're just delicious. Huh. Were, were they younger birds, older birds? Because what I've heard most is the older birds tend to taste like sage and the young bir younger birds, um, people actually, you know, uh, rave about how good they taste. But do you know if you had older or younger birds? Well, I, so oh, Chad, um, yeah, my bird, uh, the biologist aged my bird at uh, two years, at least two years. He said it was at least two years old, and and I think Marissa's bird was was probably as as old or older hmm. than mine. So so yeah, I I think uh, yeah I think there's not much stock in in uh, that uh, wise tale about right. It's it's it always ends up in how you cook them because I very recently um, was able to, to bag my first spruce grouse and spruce grouse, much like sage grouse get absolutely destroyed by critics 
about how they taste. Uh, you know, and sage grouse like, oh, they just taste like sage. All you and spruce grouse, same thing. Might as well just have gin and tonic with it, and you know, because it just tastes like spruce, right? But uh, and mine was a young, young sprucey, but it, it was arguably the best wild game I'd ever eaten, and really? you know, it was, it was, you know, maybe three hours after I got it, so it was super fresh, and all I did was put a little salt and pepper, olive oil, and grilled it, medium rare, and yeah. it was. Terrific. There's nothing. And I, you know, I posted that on on, of course, on Instagram and people, oh, they taste terrible where I'm from. It's like, well, <laughs> oh, I don't know what to tell you. This was awesome. So everybody always overcooks their birds. I think that's always. that's what it comes back to, especially the red meat birds, you know, the, yeah. the ducks and the the prairie grouse, the sage grouse, the spruces, uh, just like medium rare to rare and you'll be all right you know it's like i i don't know what people are worried about having them more rare you know like what are you gonna get you know (laughs) it's not like you're eating bear you know you're not gonna Mm -hmm. get trichinosis like just take it easy with it and you know it's unbelievably good but anyway so so chad out of these two uh wonderful hunts and you've been uh, raving about both hunts in a positive way for you know for months uh, and you've written a story that's going to be in the the winter issue as a result of these two hunts tell us about that yeah uh so so it, it, interesting i you know i i'm i'm 49 years old and uh i have never really hunted with women before that's a that's a you know kind of a an interesting way to put it, but I, you know, I, I mean, I grew up in the seventies and the eighties and, and I grew up in a, in a hunting culture that really, uh, emphasized maleness, you know, it, it, you know, women really didn't hunt. They weren't really well represented in, in the ranks of hunters. And so I never really had much of an opportunity to, to hunt with, with women before. And so when I got this job, it was kind of a revelation to me. It's like, I, all of a sudden I'm, I'm surrounded by these women that, uh, uh, that can, you know, outshoot me, out, out hunt me, uh, out walk me, you know, I mean, and, and so I, I, I quickly realized that, uh, you know, there are women out there who, who love to hunt and who are good at it. And so I, I wrote this, I, it's, it's kind of an essay on sort of some of my thoughts and, uh, about, uh, the discovery of, of hunting with women. And it's, it's called, uh, uh, what do you want me to give you the title? Sure. Okay. <laughs> the the rise of the uh, uh, IFBH, and uh, uh, that stands for Independent Female Badass Hunter, <laughs> and 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 that's kind of what I what I uh, what, what I discovered was that there are a lot of women out there who who really break that mold, and and you know I mean you, you talk about a glass ceiling, and uh, I, I think that that women have really shattered the glass ceiling in hunting in a big way. And, uh, you know, just like with, you know, Marissa and I, we, we kind of have this Mutt and Jeff routine. We've, we've kind of become hunting buddies. And I never, you know, before I got this job, I, I never realized, I never, I never knew that, that one of my primary hunting buddies would end up being a woman. And uh, I just think it's a, a really interesting and, and welcome phenomenon. Marissa, thank I you. I feel so for, bad uh, for you, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, so on behalf of all of us, Marissa, thanks for taking one for the team. (laughs) (laughs) So give us, give us, give us that acronym again. Uh, The IBFH, (laughs) the Independent Badass Female Hunter. So I I like the sentiment. I am skeptical about whether or not that's going to catch on. Because I can't remember at the moment after you say it. <laughs> See, I'm I, I'm I'm hoping I'm hoping that I start a trend, you know, like some hashtag. I want it to be a hashtag. That, that was the entire reason for writing the story that I could claim my own cool hashtag. Okay, so, let me I F B H. No? Yeah. I I F I F B H. Okay, I have trouble with it myself. I think he started with IFBH the first time he said it, and then he switched it. So okay. We're going to yeah. go back I have and to, listen to it. I, okay. I have to think about it a little bit, but it's IFBH. Yeah. Hashtag IFBH. And that is in the winter edition of the Quail Forever Journal, which is in the mail right now. Right? Uh, it's it's, it's Soon. in the printer right now. It will be in the mail. Uh... Oh, wait. I don't have... Uh, it, it will be in the mail later, later this month. All right. So if folks that are listening and... Um, if you're current members, first of all, thank you very much. Uh, we definitely need more folks involved in Quail Forever. Um, thank you for being a member. If you're not currently a member and you want to get Chad's article about IFBH, <laughs> Independent Female Badass Hunters. Did I do that right? Yep. Which, which I, I have read the article, and it's a terrific article, even if the title sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is an awesome article. Um, and if you want to join Quail Forever, but so if you join right now, you wouldn't be on our subscription list to get that particular article um, or that issue. However, drop me an email at bobs at quailforever.org. Let me know that you joined Quail Forever because you wanted to read that article. And I'll make sure that uh, we get you that particular winter edition of the Quail Forever Journal sent in the mail to you. Because uh, it is it is a, a really, really thoughtful article on um, kind of breaking some perceptions and stereotypes that um, not from a malicious perspective, just from an, sorry to say this, Chad, ignorant perspective, right? <laughs> like, <yeah. laughs> oh, absolutely. But, but I think that the that's it. I you know that's not just you. I mean, there's we've all witnessed sort of a um, just a wonderful outpouring of interest from more and more women getting involved in bird hunting. And I'm very fortunate. I've talked about this before. I'm fortunate to have had a mom that gets. 50% equal credit with my dad on getting me into bird hunting. Um, she's the best shot in the family. So uh, <laughs> folks that have hunted with me know that isn't saying a whole hell of a lot, but <laughs> my mom is a good shot. Um, but it, it, I think that's probably the, uh, not the norm. So it, it was, yeah. um, it, it was an interesting article to stick your neck out and say, Hey, this is, um, this is something I wasn't accustomed to and it's wonderful. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I, I hesitated before writing it because 
on one hand, I thought, okay, am, am I mansplaining here? You know, am, mm-hmm. am I guilty of, of what I'm trying to, uh, uh, to, to not do? But it, it, it turned out to be just sort of my thoughts uh, on, on learning about this, you know, on, on uh, the experience of, of hunting with women and the, the realization that, uh, you know, th- that these women have, have always been here, uh, you know, wanting to hunt, but traditionally there weren't really a lot of outlets for them to do that. And so, you know, it, it is a, a, a certainly a, a changing of the culture and one that I think is, is you know, long past due. And, uh, and, and, and also is a, a personal revelation for me. I mean, I, so far this season, uh, I've been, you know, I've been hunting since September. I haven't gone hunting with a dude yet. Hmm. It, it's all been women. And, and I've, you know, and it's been, I've, I've had a great time, you know, and, and, uh, I've, I've made hunting partners that I, that, you know, even three years ago, not that I didn't want to make or never thought that I would make. It's just that I never really thought to make. And partly that was partly the fact. Uh, that I, I do tend to hunt alone most of the time, you know, probably 90% of my hunting is, is done alone. But, but the other 10%, when I do hunt with other people, I just never had the opportunity to go hunting with, uh, with a woman before. And as a matter of fact, the first time that I, I think I ever went hunting with women was on the rooster road trip last year. Mm. And, and, and fortunately I was paired with, you know, Marissa and, and Laura McIver, who is also, you know, I mean, absolutely fills that, that, uh, that acronym, you know, and and I just had a blast, and it just opened up a whole new, new world for me. Hmm. What's you know one thing that you know when I approached reading it, I did think, you know, how much is it about hunting with a different gender versus hunting with unique individuals, right? You know, like, and that's something Marissa we've talked a lot about when we've talked the Women on the Wing Initiative or different. You know, because it is, there's a challenge there to um, where you don't want to just paint the picture of just gender specific versus, you know, every individual, whether they're male or female or whatever they identify with, there's, everybody's different and everybody has different sensibilities and approaches. That said, you know, there's, there are certain things that you can profile, right? And so what's your take on when when you read Chad's article, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I, you know, when he first mentioned that he was working on the piece, um, you know, it was like, well, I think this is going to be good, but let's take a look at it first and make sure that you're not mansplaining. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But no, I, he did a fantastic job. Um, And, you know, I think more of a story of, where we've come from as individuals um, looking at, you know, different, um, you know, genders and um, just diversity in the field, you know, and, and, and where we're going and what that expectation, you know, kind of was for him and what it looks like now. Um, so I think it was extremely well done. I'm excited to, you know, have other women read it, have other men read it, um, you know, and I think, it is so important, like you mentioned, Bob, that we always, um, you know, look at each individual person as an individual because we all have different struggles, different frustrations, different motivations, different mm-hmm. strengths. Um, sometimes that can, you know, gender can play into that, but sometimes it doesn't. Um, and so I think, you know, it, it's always going to be better if we we just talk to one another and ask questions versus assuming. And I think he nails it. Yeah. 
All right, let's let's turn our attention back to quail. Uh, we are all excited about kind of getting into the field and seeing a covey rise because for me that, that's what separates quail from so many of the other the birds. Like you can get groups of pheasants flushing together, you can get early season groups of rough grouse or prairie chickens and sharp sharpies, but with quail, it's almost always, and this is somewhat universal across all the species, it is the rush of the cubby rise. Is that what gets it for, for both? I know you're both passionate about quail. I'm going to start with the editor of the Quail Forever Journal, because I know, you know, Supreme, at least in our department, you love quail more than anybody else. Um, <laughs> tell, tell, me, tell me why. It, it is. I mean, it, there are a couple of reasons. Uh, one, you know, speaking specifically to to the Covey Rise, I mean, it is it is so identified for me personally. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, uh, it, I, I grew up, I, you know, my parents were divorced when I was 10. And so I, I grew up in sort of a non-traditional, I grew up hunting and I grew up hunting quail, but I did it in a really non-traditional way. And actually I speak to this some in that story that we were just talking about. Uh, so, you know, it, I, I distinctly remember, you know, the first time I ever saw a covey of quail, you know, rise up and it, it made such an impression on me. And, you know, and it, it is, you know, the, 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 the rush of the covey rise is, is, is a big part of it, but also the, for me, the, the real love of quail, uh, is, is how they embody a sense of place. You know, I mean, uh, especially the Bob white, you know, the Bob white is, is, kind of my, I've always called it my, my totem bird. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it, it goes back to my childhood and, and, you know, learning how to hunt quail and, uh, uh, and the association with that, but, you know, whatever species I hunt, you know, I, no matter where you are in the country, you know, you have a species of quail that is just very emblematic of the landscape they inhabit. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think they do that in a way that, that very few other birds do. And, uh, you know, that's, that's why whenever, you know, whenever I go to a new place and hunt a new species of quail, I instantly fall in love with that bird because not only, I mean, it, it's weird. They're, they're different from Bob whites, but they're the same as well. You know, I mean, it's, it, they, they, they kind of take on the characteristics of the landscape that they hunt. And, uh, and to me that, that, that sort of unique connection between species and, and, and place is, uh, is what really drives me. It's funny because <clears throat> you probably can't see my note um, and listeners can't see my note for sure. <laughs> but I wrote, I wrote on, you know, the, my number two reason for why I personally love quail and why I enjoy your writing so much is sense of place. Because um, I do believe all upland birds, it, it, you know, have a tremendous connection to a sense of place the north woods and rough grouse and the farmland with pheasants and chuckers with mountains. However, I agree wholeheartedly with you that the connection is so tight when you get to the quail species. When you say Mern's quail, you think, boom, the Arizona border. Yeah. Um, when you think about scalies, think about that just cactus filled gnarly, you know, when I think about Bob White's, Bob whites in the Southeast means different things to me than Bob whites in Nebraska, which is 
similar to Bob White's in Texas, but that's different too, you know, and yeah. the, the tightness of that sense of place in the different quail. Uh, and that's why I've always loved your writing from the mallard to discontent days to, to today is that you capture that sense of place with quail. And, and I didn't really know now until, or until now that you felt that same way. I mean, I, I could sense it in your writing. Have you been deliberate about that in your writing? Have you always, have you always focused on that? I, I think so. Either perhaps not always consciously, but certainly always subconsciously because, you know, I, I've always characterized it as, as like, I'm not necessarily a lonely person, but bird hunting takes me to lonely places, you know, <laughs> and, and, and that's, that's very true. I, I, I love isolation. I love solitude. I love, mm. I love that sense of being in lonely country. Mm. And, and to me, no bird embodies that like, like quail do. And, and, and that sense of that, that tying in of geography and, and place and with, you know, with the bird and with, of course, my love of hunting, it, that's, you know, that's really what drives me mm. is, uh, you know, and, and, and like I said, I, prairie grouse do it with me as well, just to not quite the extent, um, you know, a perfect example of a bird that I, I think that I would love to, to, to love and I do love, but they don't evoke that sense of place is like the, the woodcock. You know, I, I got into woodcock hunting a couple of years ago and, and it's a fascinating little bird, but they don't, to me, they don't have a sense of play. That's obviously because they're a migratory bird, but, but, you know, they, they don't evoke that sense of, of place and, and longing in me that, that quail do, you know, they're just a quailer. Like I said, they're, uh, they're sort of my soul bird. <laughs> your totem bird, your soul bird, um, and you, you're an asset to have on the team because you do stand up and say, you know, quail forever is your quail is why I love quail forever. It connects, um, you know, very deeply to you on a personal and a professional level. Yeah. I mean, I've always said, and, and it may be dangerous to say this, but, uh, I, I don't much care for pheasants. <laughs> well, it's a good thing you know? that's your editor of quail forever then. Uh, I'll, I'll shoot them, but they're just such a dishonorable bird. You know? <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> Don't fire me. <laughs> Marissa, you've got a soft spot in your heart for quail as well. I do, and, and particularly Bob White. Um, you know, some of that's specific to, um, you know, really that's been my experience with quail. Um, but I, I look at it a lot as, you know, a bird that I grew up with. Um, you know, I've lived in Nebraska my whole life, and, and granted, I live in the biggest city in the state, but, you know, I have family from a very small rural town um, that farmed. And so, you know, throughout my life, I, you know, associate springtime with the Bob White call mm. and, um, you know, different places that I've worked. We had prairie nearby where you could hear him in the morning and it just became one of my favorite sounds. Um, you know, and then when I started hunting, it's just, you know, kind of similar to some of the, the prairie grass species, but they really do represent the health of the landscape. Mm. Um, when, when everything is, um, you know, harmonious in, in a place, you know, you've got your, your nice coveys of quail, you've got um, your songbirds, and it's just the overall picture of the place and what they represent. Um, and then, of course, you know, flushing them in the, in the fall is 
terrifying and amazing all at once. Um, I still haven't quite figured it out. I've been successful a few times, but, uh, <laughs> and it's definitely, I, I will say that um, Reese, my oldest short hair, her most phenomenal points and what she excels at is quail hunting. Um, mm. I've hunted with several different people now and, and that dog just has a nose for quail and can pick up singles that other dogs run by. And so I just, I love it. I mean, they're just incredible birds. Yeah. Uh, as we, as we pivot to the season ahead, uh, Chad, without going kind of an in-depth state by state, give us, give us the overview of what, quail hunters should expect for the 2020 slash 2021 season? Yeah, I, I think pretty much uh, kind of a, a rinse, lather, repeat of last year. Uh, for, for the most part, I think in most regions, quail numbers have are, are either steady or have improved slightly. Uh, I know in the Southeast, uh, you know, pretty mild winter uh, and, and decent nesting conditions in areas where habitat is available. Uh, bird numbers are doing pretty well. Um, and as a matter of fact, I've, I've got a couple of stories upcoming in the season. One of the things that I'd like to do more of is, is focus some more on, on public land hunting in the Southeast, because, you know, the birds are there, especially mm -hmm. in areas of, of where, where groups like QF has, has done habitat work. Right. Uh, it's just, I, I think a lot of people don't make the effort to find them. And so, you know, like I said, that's a, a subject of a couple upcoming stories. But you know, across the southeast, uh, I think that uh, it's generally going to be pretty much like last year. Uh, same thing in in the Midwest, in the Great Plains states. Um, I, there are a couple of spots that uh, I think probably bear mentioning. Um, you know, Kansas. You know, Kansas is perennially one of those states that is one of the top quail destinations. You know, in the country, they've got a, a fantastic walk-in area. Um, you know, a million plus acres. So there's, there's plenty of opportunity there. Uh, you know, the South central Kansas this year, central Kansas is I think going to have pretty good bird numbers. Unfortunately, Southwest Kansas, uh, which is one of the places I like to hunt the most since I live so close there, uh, is pretty dry. And I think, uh, I think bird numbers are going to be down in, mm -hmm. in that area, that Southwest Kansas, Southeast Colorado area, uh, out West. I think the place to be is, is probably, you know, again, uh, Arizona is one of those States that, uh, uh, that are on a lot of people's radar and that uh, they are by all accounts having a pretty good gambles here this year. Mern's counts are, are down. Uh, I don't think they got the range at the right time that they needed for Mern's. So, so Mern season, although, you know, most people, I think a lot of people travel to Arizona specifically for Mern's. This may be the year that you travel to Arizona for gambles mm. uh, because they, they're having a good year. So, and in out West California, I think uh, in Southern California, they're, they're having a decent season, but the fires have definitely uh, complicated things. You know, we were talking with Ruben on the podcast recently about national forest closures. And so that's one of those, one of those situations where you kind of have to, to check local conditions, mm. but, you know, but, but overall, I think uh, it could certainly be a whole lot worse. And I think, uh, go ahead. Well, uh, um, touch, touch on Texas, because when you, when you, Texas is, when you think quail, you know, qu Texas is probably the South Dakota. What South Dakota is to pheasants, Texas is to quail in terms yeah. of number of birds and number of hunters. Yeah, Texas and Oklahoma. I, I, I would I would include you know Western Oklahoma in that, and it's it's going to be spotty. You know, Texas is such a huge state, mm -hmm. and they have such large tracts that you know such big ranches out there that that local weather conditions I think really drive quail numbers in Texas uh, 
more than anything else. And so, you know, from what I've I've heard, there are going to be areas in Texas that are going to have decent bird numbers, and then there are going to be areas in Texas that probably are not going to have, you know, very good bird numbers. Mm-hmm. And and same thing in Oklahoma. Uh, you know, we uh, uh, there, there are going to be some areas of the state that are going to be pretty. That we've been dry this year in in a large chunk of the state, and so there are going to be areas that uh, local local areas that don't have as many birds as what you had last year. And there are going to be areas that had, you know, maybe decent carryover and had pretty good range this spring and summer where you're going to be able to find some birds. So no matter where you go, you're going to have to work for your birds. Uh, but, you know, I mean, that's, you're going to have to work for your birds regardless. So. And speaking of no matter where you go, where are you going to go? You mentioned earlier in the podcast, uh, Kansas is coming up for you in the next couple of days. Uh, what else is on your radar this season? Yeah. Well, you know, so <clears throat> I primarily hunt, uh, since I live so close to the Kansas border, Kansas and Oklahoma are my two main quail hunting states when I stay close to home. So uh, I, I will hunt Kansas quite a bit this year. I, obviously, I will hunt Oklahoma quite a bit. Um, I am going to, um, I'm, I'm going to hunt Arkansas this year. Uh, you know, our QF and Arkansas, they're, they're doing a lot of really cool work over there. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, you're seeing some tangible results. So I'm going to go over there hunt over there, write a story on that. Uh, I'm going to hunt the first QF land acquisition in Missouri as well. So I'm going to go up there and hunt that. Uh, I will go back to, I'm going to leave for Nebraska tomorrow, just to freelance uh, for a couple of days, bounce around and hunt some of the open fields and waters. And then it, in December, I'm going to uh, Arizona, back to Arizona. That's one of those places that uh, uh, I, I really love visiting. You've been there, you know, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a pretty special place. And uh I'm going to hunt there and write uh, write a story on a couple of really cool land access stories, uh, QF land access stories in the state of uh, Arizona. And uh, also we'll probably try to hunt New Mexico as well this year. Mm-hmm. New Mexico is one of those states that uh, uh, is kind of a sleeper. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't think of New Mexico as, as, a, as a quail state, but uh, uh, it's... It, there's a lot of opportunity there, especially in the southern part of the state. You know, it's one of the few states where you can you can shoot four species of quail. Hmm. So, so what, what are the four you can shoot in New Mexico? Uh, Mern, Scaled, Bob White, and Gambles. Gambles, yeah. Marissa, you've uh, you've been to the Sand Hills for prairie grouse. You've been to Wyoming sage grouse hunting. Where else? What else is on your calendar for the remainder of the season? Yeah, so Kansas is coming up next week. Um, I get to go hang out with with some of our um, volunteers and members in Kansas. So I'm looking forward to going back. That was my my first out of state hunt was in Kansas. So I have a very soft spot in my heart for that state. Um, otherwise, I um, plan on remedying my situation in Nebraska, just <laughs> hunting hard here and. Um, there's a couple parts in the state, um, specifically central Nebraska that are very special to me. So I, uh, I need to go check and see what the population is doing. You know, it's, it's responsible to do such a thing. Responsible so. recreation. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that's what I've got planned for the rest of the year. Awesome. Well, I, uh, I will be going to Nebraska for sure as well. Nebraska is one of those states that, uh, well, <clears throat> probably in the last 15 years, I've only missed a hunt, um, a season in Nebraska once or twice. It's a, it's a state that folks should for sure check out. Um, wonderful public lands opportunities, and um, I like Chad. I'm trying to figure out a way to get back to Arizona. 
I hunted that for the first time ever in January and talk about a sense of place, uh, a whole, a sense of all kinds of different places all in one, yeah. one state. Cause you go up into the hills, kind of the Oak Savannah chasing Merns and then like 20 miles different, you'd be in the cactus, um, you know, infused desert chasing gambles and then five miles different, a little bit Diff, just a little bit different kind of desert in your after scalies. And, you know, it, 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 look, it seems like every September sage grouse explodes on Instagram in every January Merns explode, you know, Arizona yep. quail hunting explodes on Instagram. So, so uh, I guess if you're listening, make your plans early because there's going to be a lot of responsible recreators uh, during the COVID winter number two looking to, to get into um, some quail hunting in Arizona. It is, I, I guess, up until, you know, maybe uh, three, four years ago, I think it was a bit of a secret. You know, you could read about Jim Harrison would be down there chasing quail, but, you know, the, the big sporting publications really didn't cover Arizona quail hunting until the last few years. Yeah, it, it seems that way. I think that there's always been, you know, one of uh, sort of a subculture of, of, you know, the itinerant traveling bird hunter who ends up in Arizona, mm -hmm. you know, for the winter. Uh, but the, it's always seemed to kind of fly under the radar until the past few years. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I think probably, you know, social media has driven a lot of that. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, I mean, which, you know, with good reason. I mean, it's a fantastic place to visit. Yeah. I mean, who wouldn't want to go there? Well, uh, as we wrap up, I, I'll invite folks to listen. Uh, I'm sorry, to so become a member um, as you listen to this particular episode. Um, we do have a lot of great stories coming up in the, in the course of the next year, which Chad will be uh, adventuring here in the next couple of months. And that'll end up in the pages of the Quail Forever Journal. And uh, what's, what's the acronym again for the story in the, the winter issue? IFBH. <laughs> if you want to, I got it right this time. If you want to read the IFBH story and trust me, you do want to read it. Uh, you do need to become a member of Quail Forever. You can do so at quailforever.org. Um, if you do that, uh, drop me an email, bobs at quailforever.org, and I will make sure we send you that extra issue because we want you involved in our habitat organization as Marissa's dog <laughs> shakes a little bit. Well, that's a good close as any. Uh, Marissa, and Chad, thanks for making time to, to share your excitement over the coming quail season. Uh, and I'll invite everybody to get out there and go chase a covey rise if you've never experienced it before. It's one of the great things um, to, to uh, experience in this world, particularly if you're a bird hunter. All right, folks, I'm Bob St. Pierre. Thanking you for listening and saying, always follow the dog. You never know when a covey is going to rise. Thanks, folks.